This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to the Lung Science Podcast. My name is Will Zacharias and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati and Cincinnati Children's Hospital. With me to discuss single cell sequencing in the lung today is Dr. Jeff Whitsitt, who is a professor of pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. All right, Jeff, thanks for joining me. Um, what we've decided to talk about today is what we've learned from single cell sequencing of the lung and what is the future of the approach. So I thought we could start just by reviewing what, in your mind, are the key successes of single cell up till now, uh, and then we'll talk about challenges and areas for improvement. So to begin, what do you think is the key success or successes that we've had with single cell sequencing uh, over the period of the last few years? Delighted to meet with all of you this morning. Um, it's also been an exciting time uh, to watch the development of single cell sequencing and omics in general as the technologies have improved uh, at rapid speed. Um, some of the key successes um, are the development of that technology. It's uh, allowed the uh, analysis of ever more cells at ever more depth and with varying technologies. We started with single cell analyses of RNA nearly 10 years ago when individual cells were simply isolated from a Petri dish and sequenced. Uh, Rapid development of um, microfluidics allowed um, initial analysis of hundreds of cells per experiment uh, nearly five or six years ago with a fluidine apparatus and then moving to drop and uh, now 10x, which is uh, really allowed standardized um, analysis of single cell of 10,000 cells per experiment. Uh, with, with reasonable depth and, and understanding of the cell types that, that can be identified. Along with the technological de developments uh, have been uh, the bioinformatics, which has been absolutely critical uh, to beginning to interpret what is now a flood of data. You can imagine a single experiment with 100,000 cells with 24,000 cDNAs quantitative, and the massive amount of data has to be interpreted. And so one of the most exciting things for me to watch has been the develop of algorithms in computer science that's allowed ever deeper understanding of the kind of data we're generating. So having been through each of those eras, what do you think are the key benefits of the modern technologies compared to the early technologies? And how do you feel like we've progressed over the past few years uh, looking at common areas of lung biology? The challenge of lung biology, especially in the human lung, is its uh, remarkable size and heterogeneity of structure and cells. Um, Claude L'Enfant, some 40 or 50 years ago, estimated by hand raising that there were probably 40 or 50 different cell types that's made it into the textbook. The single cell analysis now allows us to see both types at a level we could have never imagined of regional differences in those cell types, temporal and, and spatial combined differences um, ac across uh, multiple scales. Um, the integration of, of data now enables um, interpretation of both RNA, proteomics, and epigenetics on virtually the same cells or groups of cells. 
So one of the remarkable uh, new challenges has been to integrate these diverse data to begin to have a systems biology approach to understanding how cells get in the right place, how they make the right genes, how they maintain homeostasis, and how they respond um, to developmental cues or to um, injury and repair. The single cell analysis for the first time allows us to understand how cells social network within those regions during um, development or repair. We've always um, imagined that uh, morphogenesis and repair require the interaction of multiple cell types. And we could isolate those in bulk and begin to understand what each of the group of cells are doing. But now in very small niches and regions, isolate cells and ask who has which ligand and who's making which receptor. How are they speaking to each other in local niches? Which fibroblasts may be talking to which kind of epithelial cell? What immune cell might be creating a niche uh, together to allow um, uh, repair or development? So for those of us uh, in using bulk sequence or bulk analysis for many, many years, this is a revolution in biology that's uh, allowing us to get insights we could never have imagined. Another major um, advance has been the development of NukeSeq. We have accessibility of rare patient material in diverse places um, without access to the technology, but the ability now to uh, both look at epigenetics as well as RNA seq at the nuclear level and integrate nuclear seq with um, uh, epigenetic marks using attack seq or cut and run. Um, uh, CHIP-seq uh, technologies really begins uh, the insights that we could never have dreamed to integrate uh, gene expression uh, with the regulation of the entire genome. So it's indeed an exciting time. So thank you for that overview. Let's zoom in on a couple of areas that are near and dear to both of our hearts and start with development. You've spent a large portion of your career looking at gene expression dynamics during various developmental processes in the lung. What was one or two things that surprised you or that there were new insights that you wouldn't previously have expected from traditional techniques that you've learned from the recent developmental series that have been done in lung development? Yeah, sure. I've been somewhat epithelial centric uh, in my now somewhat long career. Um, the ability now to see subsets of cells um, that change dynamically, um, both their uh, progenitor cells uh, and their differentiated uh, daughter cells can be identified in the sequences um, that predict their lineage trajectories from uh, a progen an early progenitor, say, at the earliest formation of the lung bud. Uh, those, for example, are SOX9 positive cells in the peripheral uh, uh, or uh, tubules of the developing lung. Uh, we can follow that trajectory using bioinformatics by sequential RNA uh, series over time. And using new programs, uh, for example, Monocle 3 or um, Operative Transport or Slice, allows us to, uh, to predict with reasonable certainty uh, the trajectory that cells make. And so we can follow a SOX9 progenitor cell, its proliferative state in the fetal lung, getting instruction from subsets of mesenchymal cells. Uh, around the time of birth, we see uh, the differentiation of a, 
an AT2, AT1 cell that's in a state of transition as cells are making decisions to form the alveolus. These cells are active in the perinatal period, but essentially disappear later in development as very clearly differentiated type 1 and type 2 cells are formed. But when you injure the lung, subsets of um, differentiated cells can uh, take on a proliferative and reparative uh, multipotent uh, uh, cell state, for example, the, the new axon 2 positive progenitor cells that uh, receive WIMP signals and uh, are active in uh, repairing the alveolus. Um, so we can now begin to follow the transitions uh, during differentiation and repair uh, and find both the signaling events and the transcriptional events that allow those transitions. Someday, we'll, understanding those networks will allow us to, to develop new therapies, which will enhance uh, the repair of the lung following severe injury. So then another key area where much data has been generated over the last few years is in lung diseases, um, both in pediatric lung disease, where we started to be able to assess samples of rare lung disease, but probably more um, frequently with adult lung diseases like IPF of which there's, you've generated a data set and several other groups continue to add additional data sets to that area. So what are a few take home messages for you from the, from the work on adult lung disease and what does it tell us about the state of the lung uh, in someone with advanced stage IPF? One of the most exciting things for me is, is now to be able to access um, human disease pathogenesis in ways we could never have dreamed. We can't do lineage tracing in our patients. Um, uh, but using uh, single cell uh, omic technologies, we can identify the cell types, the cell states, the transitions that cells are making in health and disease. So we're beginning with a, a number of uh, laboratories you know, providing a whole library of data. And the, the human lung, the mouse lung, they can be readily uh, interrogated and compared. And our group uh, began a study of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis uh, with a single idea that uh, fibrosis, uh, whether you're a neonate with bronchopulmonary dysplasia or, or uh, someone affected by a serious fibrotic disease like IPF, that the cells and the cell interactions will be discernible using single cell, whether it's nuclear or cell type specific uh, analyses. Um, we were able to isolate um, epithelial cells from the IPF lung and found that they were uh, remarkably distinct from any of the normal AT2 cells from the normal lung. And they take on an undifferentiated uh, state, which is atypical of any known uh, lung cell. So the microenvironment that the IPF lung is creating in the niches, niches of abnormal repair and fibrosis leads to an indeterminate cell types, um, differentiation of basal-like cells, <clears throat> differentiating into abnormal goblet cells, making, for example, MUC5B in the peripheral lung where it should never be expressed, um, and expressing uh, cytokines, chemokines, growth factors uh, to the underlying mesenchyme, uh, which may uh, be involved in the fibrotic process. So. Using the single cell analyses, we can get insights into the network, the social network by which the abnormal microenvironment is being uh, created. 
we're able to look deeper into that data and see that hippo yap uh, networks and pi3 kinase tgf beta networks were highly active in the epithelium and under signaling to the underlying mesenchyme so using these kinds of approaches we can begin to have targets that um, whose uh, inhibition or activation may be uh, therapeutic someday so as we've learned so far a lot from various different diseases, um, we've entered into an era now where many groups have access to this technology, largely thanks to the proliferation of 10X genomics and the facility with which many labs can use that technology, which has been wonderful. We've also started to see the generation of a number of very large data sets, as you mentioned, which are challenging to grapple with even at the best of times. So uh, I'd like to ask you a philosophical question, which is how many cells do we need to sequence before we feel relatively confident that we've identified the majority of what's here? And how could we start to think about that problem uh, over the next couple of years um, where we're starting to focus on different kinds of samples or more rare diseases as compared to more common diseases? And how will we know when the inflection point is there so we can get that right as a field? I think one of the most important things in any of the ex experimental approaches are to plan experiments uh, a priori very carefully with computational um, expertise. A biologist at heart, but I am being groomed by extraordinary computational gifted uh, people uh, without whom I can't do my work. So making new teams to integrate biology and bioinformatics is in computational uh, approaches is really important and exciting. Um, how deep to go? It really depends on the experiment. Um, you may be, uh, we've seen recent work with the ionocyte and a, a deep look by pre-sorting epithelial cells from the entire lung or airways or microdissected regions allows you to identify truly rare cells like uh, Dr. Uh, Rajakapal's work on the ionocyte. Similarly, we can begin to approach the very rare epithelial cells, neuroendocrine bodies, and the nerves that supply them that have been unapproachable previously. How deep we go and uh, how uh, we look for those very rare uh, cell types um, will depend on the quest. Understanding how those cells work, how they might contribute to disease, is going to take experimentation. Um, and I hope that um, the proliferation of data um, actually is, is being uh, is occurring at industrial levels. The data will be there and available. And what will be critical is make to my mind is to make it accessible to everybody, both the biologists and the comp, uh, computer savvy uh, bioinformaticians, <clears throat> who together can use that data to have actionable items to understand the cells and network and the networks guiding those cells that are involved in health and disease. And I think bioinformatics is uh, coming along very, very fast, uh, both lineage, network analyses, transcriptional driving forces, all can be uh, readily intuited from these data sets, from rare cells as well as common cells. It's expensive, and so planning experiments well, uh, I think, is critical and using it as a technology to answer well-formed questions rather than simply adding to ever-growing avalanche of data, which will require collaboration and sharing of data sources and placing them in at websites that will be user-friendly and accessible to all. 
I firmly believe in data sharing and having all data uh, that's supported uh, by our patients and by our society uh, made available uh, as soon as it's um, validated and as soon as it, it can be used by the, the research public. All right, so let's, for the last few minutes, talk about the future. Um, much has been learned, as uh, you've nicely told us about, um, but I think you and I agree that there are a number of ongoing challenges um, that uh, the field is going to have to grapple with. Um, so let's talk about one of the most interesting new um, single-cell technology, which is spatial transcriptomics and combination of spatial mapping with single-cell technologies. So what do you think is the, the strength of that approach and what additional questions are tractable now that have not previously been available to the single-cell technology when you start to bring in the localization within tissues? Uh, and how do you think we should start thinking about using those technologies together? The revolution in single-cell uh, sequencing is providing uh, new markers for a myriad of cell types. All of us have relied for many, many years on immunohistochemistry and there's also been a revolution in imaging and clearing of tissue so that we can begin to see in three dimensions precise localizations and contacts among and between cells um, using uh, immunofluorescence. And we're really presently restricted by the limitations of antibodies. You know, we need better and better antibodies um, uh, validated and uh, useful so that Every laboratory can interrogate their tissue at a cell-specific level. A great challenge in the lung, of course, is the alveolus. So a single septa of an alveolus has eight or nine different cell types. And so the spatial resolution of these intertwined, gracile cells is truly challenging, even at immunofluorescence level, and have to be done uh, by sequential uh, confocal uh, uh, imaging. But new advances in the ability to do in situ hybridization um, and um, expression profiling at single cell level, for example, with starfish, star map, merfish, will allow uh, a detailed analysis um, of three-dimensional uh, structures within tissues. I think it will be truly challenging in the lung and groups um, you know, throughout the country will be uh, pressing harder and harder to develop the technologies. Uh, we're looking at expansion microscopy that will allow us to expand the piece of tissue tenfold to begin to resolve the, the fine uh, structures of the cell interactions that we think are important, for example, in the alveolus. Um, but these are uh, the greatest challenges we face. Um, on top of that are proteomics, single-cell proteomics, uh, is beginning uh, on the horizon. It's now feasible with limited numbers, but expanding rapidly. And so the integration of uh, the, the, the whole dark proteome that's been even more inaccessible to us will open up in the next five to 10 years and probably faster than that and will allow us um, insights into the proteins that make our cells work, not just the RNAs that trans translate them. So. Spatial organization of both protein and, and um, gene expression and their integration uh, will be the great challenge, but also the great opportunity for under, understanding normal development and disease. 
I personally am really looking forward to the era where we can directly compare proteome and transcriptome from individual cells. So I think one of the challenges that has hindered our work looking at rare cells is really understanding whether an RNA expression profile is the most accurate way to differentiate a cell from nearby cells, particularly for cells that have relatively similar functions. And I hope that the proteome and potentially also the epigenome, which you mentioned earlier, will give us some additional insight to that. So before we wrap up, I want to um, focus on the fact that both you and I are uh, physicians and we've cared for a number of patients in our lives. One of the things that always comes up when we talk about single cell transcriptome is how can we use this for patients? What's the right way to use it? Do you see a diagnostic role for single cell at some point? And how would we start to work towards doing that safely and effectively? And is there a certain disease or group of diseases that you see as most tractable to that approach that maybe is the low-hanging fruit we should be thinking about as a community? Uh, the opportunity is uh, ever-present for, uh, for all disease, um, certainly in tumor biology. Uh, even the smallest tumor uh, and, and the heterogeneity of cell types and the microenvironment uh, that may be adding to the uh, tumor genesis or the spread of tumor will be very approachable, uh, approachable at single cell level. I'm a neonatologist, and at heart are developmental abnormalities, uh, for example, bronchopulmonary dysplasia or the many uh, gene defects that uh, cause uh, tissue remodeling in the newborn. Um, small biopsies can now, can now be analyzed. The networks of genes can be directly associated uh, to give us insight into what kind of disease this might be. And using exome and whole genome sequencing, we're now able to identify genes and alleles. Uh, and um, using single cell analysis of the tissue that might be obtained or by biopsy or by explant, begin to understand how those genes are influencing cell-cell uh, behavior that causes uh, tissue remodeling in the lung. So we're actively studying that in alveolar capillary dysplasia or in a congenital diaphragmatic hernia and height lung hypoplasia or uh, abnormalities in the surfactant system to begin to understand how cells dysfunction and how the interactions of cells in chronic lung disease cause tissue remodeling that ends in uh, respiratory failure. Uh, that would be really a wonderful step forward. In, in adult pulmonary world, we we've started to speculate on the idea that some of our uh, interstitial lung diseases of unclear pathophysiology may be tractable. Um, I'm inspired by the work by the Budinger um, group at Northwestern where they were able to show that a cryobiopsy specimen was sufficient to do some single cell analytics in a recent Blue Journal paper, which is, I think, nicely opened up the idea that maybe if we could find the correct patient populations, either pediatric or adult, small samples may be sufficient to really start to answer some of these key questions. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, and to end, I'd just like to say thank you to everybody who joined us to listen to Dr. Witsit speak today. Uh, this episode of the Lung Science Podcast is brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology, and we thank them for the support of this important conversation in the community. If you're interested in listening to other episodes of this podcast, please visit atsjournals.org or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on either iTunes or Google Play. Thanks again for listening to us, and we appreciate you joining us. Goodbye.